This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Reform, Revolution, and Opportunism, Debates in the Second International, 1900 to 1910, edited by Mike Tabor. At its height, from 1889 to 1914, the Second Socialist International represented the majority of organized workers in the world, with the revolutionary goal of overthrowing capitalism. Its major accomplishments, such as the Eight-Hour Workday and International Women's Day, testify to its lasting influence around the world. In this important collection of debates at Congresses of the Second International, Reform, Revolution, and Opportunism captures the International's vibrancy and gives a snapshot of its strengths, weaknesses, and contradictions. As David McNally puts it, this book is a treasure chest for every socialist seeking to understand the history of their movement. Bringing together documents from 1900 to 1910, Mike Tabor shows us how socialists more than a century ago analyzed and debated key questions of their time. Find Reform, Revolution, and Opportunism at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the U.S. and U.K. receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £20, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Vincent Bevins's new book is trying to solve perhaps the most important puzzle posed by recent history. How did a decade of global mass protest so often lead not to revolutionary change, but instead to terrifying reconsolidations of extreme reaction? Bevins's answer is that mass protest movements created revolutionary situations, but without the disciplined Leninist organizations that are necessary to take advantage of such situations by seizing power and then governing. This is the first of a two-part interview with Bevins on his truly must-read new book, If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution. Bevins analyzes the recent history of a ton of places outside of the traditional first world or global north, Tunisia, Egypt, Bahrain, Yemen, Turkey, Brazil, Ukraine, Hong Kong, South Korea, and Chile. But the lessons he learns from interviewing veteran organizers in these countries are incredibly relevant no matter where you live, very much including for those of us in the United States. Speaking of relevance, what truly warms my heart more than anything about this podcast is hearing from so many of you listeners who do really important organizing work all over the world, who tell me that The Dig has been critical to your own political education and to your development as organizers and leaders. I can tell you that talking to all these amazing thinkers and organizers has been critical to my own political education in my development as an organizer and leader. There's simply no other podcast that occupies this intermediary space that we do in the way we do, bringing together the organized socialist left and left-wing intelligentsia. This is special, and it takes a lot of work by a lot of people to make it happen every week. If you've been meaning to contribute for a while, now is the time to do so at patreon.com slash the dig. 
That's how we make it happen. We also have books, tote bags, mugs to send you in the mail, depending on where you live and how much you contribute. What's more, Patreon supporters of any amount at all get our newsletters delivered to your email inbox. And our newsletters, which are really great many weeks, they are Q&As with dig guests with questions posed exclusively by our Patreon supporters. So if you want to ask Vincent or other guests a follow-up question, become a Patreon supporter now. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Dig donations are also now tax deductible, which may be relevant to you if you want to donate a lot of money to us. Please feel free to donate a lot of money to us. Okay, here's Vincent Bevins, a journalist and longtime foreign correspondent. He's the author of The Jakarta Method and his book that we're discussing today, If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution. Vincent Bevins, welcome to The Dig. Thank you so much. Let's lay out the big picture argument of your very ambitious book. You write that the past decade saw larger numbers of people participating in more mass protests than any time in human history. And it happened really all over the world, though you focus on 10 particular countries outside of Western Europe and the United States. Yet often those mass protest movements failed to win desired changes. In fact, they often led to reactionary forces taking power. They led to outcomes precisely the opposite of what initial protest organizers wanted. That was the case in seven out of 10 countries you analyzed. But before we get to the why, which is a lot of your book, let's cover the what. Lay out the scope of this just gigantic wave of global protests that you write about and and what became of it. Can we tell the history of the last decade in significant part as a decade of mass protests so often giving way to a resurgent right wing or or the reconsolidated power of reaction? Yes, I think so. And I think that is basically the idea driving the entire the entire project, as you say, it's quite an ambitious one. Um, I think that this is really an attempt to tell the story of that decade globally, of course, in in one book, which requires taking a very wide lens and requires excluding and selecting. But all works of history require um, the choice of a particular focus. I think it makes just as much sense to as anything else to choose as the focus uh, for the story of this decade as the story of unexpectedly large protests of a particular type and the unexpected consequences of those street explosions. So to be included in my book, of course, I set up these criteria myself. I select mass protest events that get so large that they either disrupt fundamentally or indeed dislodge an existing government. And what I find is that when this happens, it's not only the case that this doesn't work out exactly as planned or some of the gains were only uh, part of the total desires of the movement, because that's quite normal. Uh, you know, you, you can't expect to get everything all at once. Even you know, even in the most successful uh, uprisings or even revolutions in in history, you 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 expect to, things to take longer than the initial dreams of the moment might envision. But this story, and it really is constructed as a history rather than an argument, 
is constructed around the question, although uh, the answers come, I think, in the story itself, of how is it that so many of these mass protests led to, apparently led to the opposite of what they asked for. That not only did they move slowly or that they were dislodged, or that, they, that they were stillborn, but that indeed you got the precise opposite of what the people on the streets seemed to be asking for in the first place. So it is really a story of the decade constructed around that question with the long-term and ultimate goal of learning from what happened and looking forward to the future in which we may, we may actually change the world in the ways that are desired, or at least understand what has happened to us since 2010. You identify a fairly common protest script that movements all over the world took up, whether, whether consciously or unconsciously. First, street protests will prompt police repression, which will then lead to favorable news coverage or attention on social media, which kickstarts a virtuous cycle of more people coming into the streets, more repression, and then a crescendo of international press attention. And then ideally, this strategy results in an autocratic or undesirable government being forced to resign as historic numbers of people fill the streets. Just how wide just how widespread did this protest repertoire become? And, and am, am I missing any key ingredients to the its sequencing? No, I think that's about right. I think that in the cases, again, I select the cases that get so big that they, they indeed disrupt existing governments. And this tends to be the dynamic that you see. Now, often it is, this is not planned in the cases of both Tunisia and Egypt, which really kick off what I call the mass protest decade. The original people that got onto the streets and started agitating for changes did not envision things getting so big uh, and they did not envision indeed the removal of the leaders of those those North, Af- North African autocracies. But to the answer to the question of how widespread this particular repertoire becomes, I think it becomes globally relevant. I think that in the 2010s, a particular style of contention, a particular response to injustice and perceived injustice becomes hegemonic, indeed sometimes becoming um, apparently natural, seeming as the only real way, the the automatic or truly legitimate way to respond to injustice. And this is a, a repertoire of tactics that comes together historically. Um, this is the apparently spontaneous, digitally coordinated, horizontally organized mass protests, which are often called leaderless, especially in the early stages, though I think if you look closely, leaders somehow always assert themselves. And this is something that after the explosion in, in Egypt especially is copied and reproduced uh, around the world. And as you as you point out, the dynamic is often relies upon some kind of repression from state forces, which cause things to get bigger than initially expected. And this creates opportunities which are also not envisioned often by the people at the beginning of the protest cycle. And this this kind of unexpected opportunity that this particular style of protest, this particular type of uprising creates is indeed one that is often very difficult for this particular style of protest to take advantage of. And this is something we see reproduced throughout the decade, uh, often with tragic consequences. You write that this common organizational form that reached its peak during the 20-teens, that it was an inversion of Leninism. What is Leninism as you define it? Because Lenin, as you know, described himself as in a, quote, desperate struggle against spontaneity. 
what is Leninism? What did Lenin mean by spontaneity? And why did he believe it to be a principal internal threat to revolutionary socialist politics? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to separate a couple of things. The, there is the organizational and ideological content of Leninism. So Lenin, of course, was a, a thinker with that cast his gaze on all kinds of different issues. And so Leninism has both ideological and organizational content. So the political project of, of Lenin, of course, is to seize the state, create the dictatorship of the proletariat, which will allow for a transition to a socialist state, oversee a transition to a socialist state, and ultimately the establishment of communism. In this conception, the dictatorship doesn't mean a worse thing than what we have now. In his conception, the, the proletarian dictatorship will be more democratic than the existing bourgeois dictatorship. But all of that is not as relevant to the organizational philosophy of Leninism. And indeed, throughout the 20th century, Leninism as an organizational approach was adopted by a wide range of different movements that did not share this particular political project. So uh, a lot of the people at the end of the book uh, just come to the conclusion, not everyone, a lot of the people at the end of the book come to the conclusion, you know, like read Lenin. So, you know, what is to be done is is a fundamental uh, explication of, of both of these, I think. But I also want to separate that from what the new left believed to be Leninism, because in, in reality, what we're often dealing with, with the formation of certain approaches in the second half of the 20th century in the United States, we're dealing with a group of people, especially in the North Atlantic, especially students uh, in some of the richest societies uh, in the world, in, in the post-McCarthyist milieu, which are trying to avoid what they understand to be the mistakes of the Bolshevik Revolution. They're trying to avoid what they understand to be the ways in which the Soviet Union reproduced uh, the party form as the government itself and failed to actually transition to what was supposed to be transitioned to. So these elements that they're looking at are that Leninism calls for a tightly disciplined, hierarchically organized, professional revolutionary movement, which has a bloody-minded focus on the ends rather than the means. So they're going to do what it takes to take state power, and practices something called democratic centralism, which is not so complicated uh, and not so Leninist. It's not the first time in history that this has uh, been employed, but it's, 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 it's certainly associated with him um, by these movements, which is that ideally, democratically, everyone in the organization comes up with a line up the, you know, the famous party line. But once the party line is decided, everyone implements it. Everyone works together to implement it, even if they hadn't voted for that particular thing. And this is something which is ultimately rejected very forcefully by um, horizontalist movements in the first half or in the beginning of the 21st century. They, they insist on, on full consensus. And the new left is responding to this particular form in, uh, in the 1960s by trying to create a movement which is not focused single-mindedly on ends, but also wants to pay close attention to the means of political practice. They want to be more democratic now then uh, they want to be more democratic. They want to be as democratic now as they hope that a future society will be. Um, this is often called prefiguration. This is not something they invent, but something that they uh, become central to new left practice. They have. They are suspicious of hierarchy and structure. They do not fully reject it in the ways that all, uh, many movements in the alter globalization movement do, but they are suspicious of it and. To answer your question on spontaneity, because uh, you asked what Leninism is, it's a, it's, a, it's a big question. Lenin himself said, uh, I think it's in what is to be done. And, and this is something that I spoke about with a lot of the 
interviewees throughout the book, is that an entirely spontaneous movement will end up reproducing the dominant ideology in a given society because the dominant class has the means at its disposal to propagate and reproduce the dominant ideology. So a revolutionary movement much must know in advance what its revolutionary theory is. It must be um, united around a particular vision of society, a particular theory of revolutionary change, or it will simply reproduce the society that it is uh, uh, acting against. Which is like an obvious Gramscian insight if the ruling ideas of a time were not those of the ruling class, then it, that ruling class wouldn't be there in need of being overthrown. Right. It wouldn't work in the first <laughs> place. If, 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 if the ruling class did not have the means with which to propagate its ideas, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be around for very long. Just like, you know, if, if many of the autocratic governments uh, targeted by mass protest movements in the 2010s did not have repressive uh, the, the 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 recourse to repressive violence at their disposal, they wouldn't have been there in the first place. And I think one of the big tragedies of your a book, just one other thought on 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 Leninism, is that it's often the reactionary right that are the better Leninists than the left forces committed to horizontalism in your book. And it reminds me of a a tweet that my friend Ted Furtick, um, passed a guest Ted Furtick made last year after the Dobbs decision where he wrote, quote, Leonard Leo is the Lenin of the American right and the federal and the Federalist Society is the most successful Leninist project in the history of the United States. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, I, mean, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, and you know, perhaps I'm slightly guilty of this too, but Lenin is a word you can throw around to sound sort of uh, like to, to be, to, to really get people paying attention but i think it's i think it's right i mean like uh and this is why in the book and just in my answer right now i i make the separation between the full political content of lenin's project and the organizational approach that lenin comes up with um because in the book uh you have certain commentators referring to many right-wing forces that appear in the in the in the mass protest decade like football hooligans or indeed uh, neo-Nazi formations in, in Ukraine acting in a quote-unquote neo-Leninist manner, which, when, of course, their entire project is about the rejection of his political legacy. And, you know, just to get back to the, now we're at the really, really basic, like, the most bare-bones description of what Leninism means, there is a book that you perhaps remember from coming up in the same ideological milieu that I did, uh, Change the World Without Taking Power by John Holloway. And this was a book that indeed did uh, influence some of the horizontalist. Extremely influential book. And influenced some of the horizontalists in Brazil. Now, you're not going to find a lot of right-wing movements in the last 20 years that believed in changing the world without taking power. They were always like, let's get power. And as Rodrigo Nunes, and this is it, you know, some really brilliant um, reflections that he makes uh, at the at you know after years of paying close attention to this and being around with this Brazilian movement since the very beginning, taking power of course can lead to horrible repression, organization and discipline and effective collective action of course can lead to trauma. But the left, he argues, suffered from the the deep trauma of the 20th century so deeply that they rejected all of the things that actually work just because you could be they could be used to ultimately create something horrible and he he comes to the conclusion that just because something works 
does not mean that it must be rejected. If you reject the tools that actually allow you to take power and try to change society in a purposeful way, you're abdicating responsibility to those that will. The argument of the new left is really interesting. I'd also point to a number of of new left era formations that were rather Leninist, like like the Black Panther Party or the various party type formations that made up the new communist movement. Indeed, like it was it was SDS, the prototypical horizontalist new left organization that gave way to groups like the Revolutionary Communist Party. And in significant part, maybe that was a reaction to the anti-Leninism around them. Can we maybe see throughout history a, a push and pull on the left between Leninism and anti-Leninism and what we're looking for still, I guess, is the correct synthesis? I think that's not exactly wrong. I think he's absolutely you're right that the Black Panther Party was a Marxist-Leninist party and there's some you know, fascinating. Uh, there's even I think there's a clip on YouTube of like Fred Hampton, uh, like denouncing the excessively adventurous or the excessively structuralist uh, elements in the new left at the same time at the end of the 1960s. And there's like, yeah, there's this internal, you know, eternal debate as to is it more important to have a long term, well structured and strategic organization? Or is it more important to have fully democratic and horizontal practices right now. And yes, this, I think this back and forth between you, your, your structure can, of course, end up being a kind of authoritarian or even cult-like tiny little group of school, which, you know, we, I think, you know, people have seen this pop up. Um, democratic centralism without the, without the dem- democratic part. Without the democracy. <laughs> yeah, the democratic centralism without the democracy. So I think what you ultimately, you absolutely, what you want is you want a movement which, because, you know, as, as there's a famous essay that comes up in the 70s called uh, The Tyranny of Structurelessness by Joe Freeman, which insists that when you pretend that or when you insist that you do not have leaders, that you do not have structure, some kind of a structure ultimately arises. And it is often the structure that you do not choose. It is not, It is often, you often get leaders that are not accountable to the members of the organization because they have not been selected in a, a transparent and uh, systematic way. So there's no way, there's no way to hold them accountable. So what you want is a structure I mean, this, I'm st- skipping to it in the book. You know, there's, you know, there's many people that may insist that no, indeed, horizontalism is the only way forward. But um, what many people that I interview over the four years in which I worked on this book end up coming around to is that you do want a, an organization which can act uh, in the long term, which is properly democratic, which chooses who does what in a way which is fully democratic and yet can be structured and flexible uh, at the same time, I spent a lot of the summer with Brazil's MST. I'm working on a story about them, and I think they offer a kind of a, a counterpoint to what comes up in this book uh, often. But yes, absolutely. By the end of the 1960s, you have the Black Panther Party saying, "No, uh, you need a you need a Marxist-Leninist party that acts that builds you know builds a base uh, and that can act." strategically. And then there is, uh, which, you know, I think, yes, is you're, you're right to say is in some way a reaction against other things that are happening in the, in the United States at the time. It's definitely, though, the, the horizontalist model from the 68 generation that's carried on through the anti-globalization or, or ultra-globalization movement of, of the late 90s and early aughts, which is the moment when, when I first got involved in the left. And that movement, as you write, was even more anarchist-inflected 
than its predecessors, and it used the weapon in particular of mass protest to target international economic organizations like the WTO, the IMF, the World Bank, the G8. But the WTO protest in Seattle was really the one time the method truly worked. It was mass protests, unlike anything we'd seen in a generation, essentially shutting down the ministerial. Soon thereafter, though, it it became clear that the strategy might be futile because the magic of Seattle couldn't be replicated. The police were were ready for it and they would not be taken by surprise again. And so this critique emerged within the movement that the movement was becoming just about the tactic, about so-called summit hopping. But for many others in the movement, the failure of the strategy didn't really matter. As you quote the late anarchist anthropologist David Graeber as putting it like so in a piece for the New Left Review, I think, quote, This is a movement about reinventing democracy. It is not opposed to organization. It is about creating new forms of organization. It is not lacking in ideology. Those new forms of organization are its ideology. It is about creating and enacting horizontal networks instead of top-down structures like states, parties, or corporations. Why and how for that movement in that moment did means become more important than ends? And specifically, what about that moment in history accounts for this intense anarchist renaissance that you and I both came of age swimming in? And I absolutely came of age swimming in it. Uh, I think that watching the Seattle protests on the just-founded indie media was kind of the way that I discovered the internet, that I came of age online. This was very much something that I watched very closely. I think that the assumptions, the deep, deep assumptions, which after a lot of reflection are ultimately sort of anarchist or libertarian, were so widespread at the time, especially in the United States, that I didn't even realize that I held them the like the like the the full rejection of all kinds of structures that employed any discipline whatsoever as somehow authoritarian and somehow the thing at the time was these like autonomous affinity groups that would come together through spokes councils with representatives of these autonomous affinity groups working off of various models of consensus, if I recall correctly. Right. Yeah. Cons- yeah, absolutely. Consensus and the idea that the swarm, I mean, and the, and the idea that, you know, the swarm of, uh, of people, if it got big enough, would just necessarily lead to progress of whatever sort that you envision. And this is something that, you know, I don't want to get way ahead of ourselves, but, you know, in Brazil, this particular group that is really born out of the indie media Brazil, they just had, had this deep assumption that, well, if you just cause the big enough revolt. If you get all the people on the streets, that's going to work out for us. And we don't have to think about exactly how it, it will. And so the, to answer the question of how how this comes about, how this becomes so, this sort of school of thought becomes so influential. I mean, David Graeber in this essay, who, you know, I just want to make clear in the book, this, the book ends up being, not myself, but, you know, a lot of people that I interview in the book end up being critical of this moment in David Graeber thought. But I, I have a lot of respect for him. I've, I've read a lot of his books. I think he's a, a really fantastic thinker. Um, but he says in this essay himself, um, the new anarchist, yeah, new left review. He says, well, the Cold War is over. So kind of war is over, which is a, a jump that he makes uh, conceptually. And he admits, well, everybody knows that anarchist tactics and anarchist formations don't do really well in war. Because war is like a time of states. 
Yeah, war is, you know, everybody know, you know, look back at war, you know, militaries are hierarchically organized, militaries require some kind of internal command structure. I mean, I'm, I'm expanding, he goes, this is more than he says explicitly, but I think this is the argument that uh, motivates uh, what he's saying here. But we're not in war now. So this is a time that anarchist style organizational forms can can return. And of course, if you remember the age of the end of the so-called end of history, belief in new left, sorry, old left structures uh, was never at a lower point, right? I mean, there was there was this widespread rejection, especially in the U.S. after the end of the Cold War, after the end of the decades-long uh, consequences of McCarthyism. There was definitely a rejection of whatever it was that clearly didn't work out over there. And there was a huge amount of optimism around this new tool that was being built and everybody was getting onto for the first time, which is the internet. So you have the seeming march forward of progress, especially in the liberal conception, because uh, if you are in the United States, things are kind of working out for your little corner of the planet for uh, in, in the 20th century. Things things are going all right. Uh, and then you have the resurgence of the possibility for anarchist organizational forms, according to Graeber, because of we're no longer in war. Uh, and then you have this 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 techno optimism, which is, I think, itself <laughs> deeply informed by anarchist and libertarian assumptions. And if you look back at a lot of the people that were putting the, the internet together, they were often anarchists or libertarians. Yeah, you write, quote, most people in my generation thought that if you simply gave the thing a kick, it would come unstuck and move in the right direction. It was this the sort of investment in liberal teleological progress that pretty much everyone, not just liberals, radical leftists, neoconservatives, were deeply invested in at the time. Yeah, this is an interesting thing, because if you look back at the optimism around the Internet, and especially when these mass protests start to explode in the 2010s, kind of everybody thinks it's going to go their way. And this includes when, you know, people who have very contradictory ideas of what their way is supposed to be. Everybody kind of thinks, well, if you get every, you know, a big enough thing together, uh, if you sort of dislodge whatever it is, then the thing that replaces it will be, you know, uh, another step on the path towards, you know, as you say, in the teleological conception of history, a, a step towards progress, a step towards where we're going to get. Now, for newspapers like the New York Times and sort of the mainstream media, which ends up shaping a lot of the mass protest decade by the way that they cover it, they believe that we're we're heading towards a world in which everybody is kind of the United States, like B-Leagues, right? Like there's the U.S., there's the real U.S., and there's a bunch of like satellite U.S. as everyone has the American model. Some people got there quicker. Some people took more time. This is kind of something that some an assumption that's deeply embedded in modernization theory. And it seems to be, okay, and this is, again, this is inflected through the way that we understood the fall of the Berlin Wall, not actually what happened to the people that lived in the former uh, Soviet Union, because that becomes a big problem uh, 10 to 15 later is when we realize what actually happened to, to all of the peoples in Eastern Europe. But the way that we... A world historic drop in life life expectancy in, in Russia, for example. <laughs> absolutely. The absolute devastation and uh, decimation of political and economic structures that, you know, almost everyone in places like Ukraine lived through, while we in the Western media tended to give ourselves a huge pat on the back for liberating East Germany and, uh, 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 you know, ushering all of the communist world into this shining liberal future. Now, almost no one, as Branko Milanovic points out, like only 10% or less of the peoples of the former Soviet Union, the, the, the former Warsaw, Warsaw Pact countries 
actually got the prosperity and democracy that we promised to them. But this was a moment of real triumphalism in the West that, okay, this is going to happen, right? Like all you have to do is, you know, people in the streets, you knock over the bad guy and then you get, you know, you just basically join West Germany. Forgetting, you know, of course, that West Germany was one of the most rich and powerful countries in human history. They expended quite a lot of resources to integrate East Germany. The Berlin Wall story doesn't really hold for Kazakhstan. Uh, it doesn't really hold for, the, you know, Russia, as you say, that lives through decimating poverty and um, uh, social collapse. But in the most dominant voices, which coincidentally were in the country, which was was profiting off, her, off of the construction of a new internet, believed that everything was going to go our way. Let's move on to the meat of your book, which with your most fully developed case study, one that you experienced personally in Brazil, where a 2013 mass protest against transit fare hikes in Sao Paulo became so large, became the largest protest in Brazilian history, that organizers in the small anarchist-oriented Movimento Passe Libre, or, or MPL, the free fare movement, they lost control of the protest's meaning. And it's a really wild story. Radical neoliberals super networked into this global neoliberal network took advantage of of the protests meaning being up for grabs and founded an organization with the intentionally similar name MBL or Movement for a Free Brazil and and ultimately those protests started by the left the radical left the anarchist ultra left they ultimately delegitimized the left-wing workers party government of Dilma Rousseff paving the way for Lula's imprisonment and then Bolsonaro's victory I've always found this to be one of the weirdest sequences that I've ever heard about in recent history. How how on earth did this happen? How did a protest movement started by the far left, which found itself opposed to the Workers' Party government, which I should emphasize at the time was really seen as more of the, the center left of the radical American left, people who were deeply involved in or invested in the, the, the so-called first pink tide in the aughts, I think, typically framed Chavez and, and Morales as on the sort of like left wing of the pink tide and, and Lula um, as as around its it's uh, on the right wing of it, i.e. so more of a center left. But obviously the, these these protesters saw themselves as opposed to Lula for the from the left, but they never imagined that Bolsonaro, something like Bolsonaro could happen. How did this movement started by the far left set a series of events into motion that ended in one of history's most cartoonishly far-right presidencies. I mean, so you're absolutely right that they never imagined something like Bolsonaro happening to their country. They never even imagined that the center-right would win. Uh, When it became possible, when it became clear uh, uh, in 2014 that the traditional sort of more neoliberal party in Brazilian politics could actually win the election, this was shocking to them. This led them to line up to vote for for Dilma Rousseff. And as as you say at the beginning of this, introduction to a very strange and complicated story. They lost control of the streets for reasons that we just sort of sketched out and the deep assumptions that were held by a lot of a lot of people in the alter globalization movement. They planned to lose control of the streets. They hoped to lose control of the streets. They hoped to inspire an uprising, a popular revolt that was out of their control. Now, this is something, and as you know, this comes out of some of their recollections afterwards. They say, because this was a group founded in 2005, that a lot of the, the, the people in the Movimento Passo Livre did have links to Indie Media Brazil. They certainly grew out of the sort of anarcho-punk world, which had a lot of overlap with the 
alter globalization movement. So years later, they say, you know, from 2005 to 2013, for eight years, we did we all we wanted was to cause a massive popular revolt. We succeeded, and it was awful. We thought that getting everybody in the streets after we provide the initial spark would somehow go our way, would somehow provide for more bottom-up pressure on, on the Workers' Party, which is, as you, as you say, they opposed, but they did not want to see replaced by the right. It did not go that way at all. Now, how does that happen? How is it that they actually accidentally succeed? And how is it that it goes very differently than, than what, how they planned? To tell this story, I put myself into it because I am at the fourth protest that they hold in June 2013, the one that is cracked down upon in such a way that a huge explosion follows, you know, in, in this, this is reflected across the decade. This is something that is not unique to Brazil, but this particular transformation is uh, especially weird and it has a lot to do with the Brazilian media. So on the morning of June 13th, 2013, the Brazilian media, which like a lot of media in the world, especially in the global south, but not only increasingly in the places like the US too, leans to the right and is owned by oligarchs, essentially. On the morning of June 13th, the media is demanding that the military police crack down on this movement. The military police, of course, being a legacy of the US-backed dictatorship, cops in, in Brazil are military cops. And so the center-right media are saying, all right, enough of this. These kids who have been protesting for much of the month uh, to demand a reversal of the rise in bus fare fees. This is getting out of hand. They're shutting down traffic. Get out there. Clean this up. Now, if the owners and writers for Brazil's media had been from the populations that usually suffered the repression of the Brazil's military police, they should have known how this was going to go because the Bra Brazil's military police do what they do and they repressed in the way that they repress. And this repression hit people like me. It hit me specifically, but I wasn't one of the ones that went like famously viral and caused, for the, caused the media to flip uh, uh, to entirely change their position. The crackdown hit members of the Brazilian media. It hit respectable, you know, quote unquote, respectable, quote unquote, innocent members of Brazil's uh, white middle class. Images of this repression went viral. Images of the injuries sustained by Brazilian journalists, including for the most establishment outlets, went viral. And so the Brazilian media flips from June 13th, 2013, and then June 17th, from that Thursday to the following Monday. Brazil's media goes from saying, we need to crack down on these punks and anarchists to no, no, no. This is a patriotic uprising. This is a patriotic outpouring of support for the idea of protest itself. This is a heroic protest for protest's sake. This is, and this is not because, you know, and I spoke, I spent, you know, a couple of years speaking with both the original organizers of the protest, the MPL, and Fernando Haddad, who was the mayor at the time. I don't think that this is, there's some conspiracy in Brazil's mainstream media to sort of re-signify what's going on in the streets. But because they decide to support it, because they now believe it is something good, um, they have to supply reasoning which lines up with their deep ideological assumptions. So while the original protesters wanted, I mean, the MPL is a group that is in the long term demanding free public transportation for everyone all the time. So they want the full decommodification of, of transportation in Brazil. 
this is not the kind of thing that Brazil's media is going to supply as the real reasons for the protest. And so as they flip and as they explain to the Brazilian people, which, you know, by necessity, any kind of media representation of a protest is how the vast majority of a country is going to experience it. Because, you know, unless you're actually there in the crowd, as I was uh, on June 13th, you're just going to be watching TV or looking at social media or, or listening on the radio to hear what it is that's happening in, in the center of, of Sao Paulo, Brazil's largest and, city. And, and that's a, and just as an aside, that is a critical feature of the rise of this new form of protest in the mid 20th century is it's in its relationship to televisual media. Yes, absolutely. This is something we skipped over quickly, but this is something I spent a little bit of time on in the 20th century is watching movements like SDS realize how much power media could have to spread their message, just how, what the multiplication effect that mass media coverage could have on a protest movement or indeed a movement that wasn't supposed to be a protest movement, but turns into one. And so, you know, it's it sounds very silly and obvious because we all grew up in such a mediatized world. But before media, before like photography and newspapers, wouldn't make a lot of sense to protest in the first place because human beings can only see what's in front of their faces. Doesn't make sense to uh, to do something in the center of the capital if, you know, only half of 1% of or less of the people in the in the nation are even going to hear about it and that you know the dominant forces can just choose to not do anything. So over these 4 days in which the media supply their own reasons for why this is actually a good thing instead of something that we need to crack down upon, the they supply their own reasoning as I said uh, in line with their own deep ideological assumptions and then the next big protest is huge. Much much bigger than anyone had expected and and, and People that I know that have been covering this since the beginning are sort of overcome with this euphoric feeling of like, we did it. Oh, my God, it's happening. The people are with us. Uh, we took this bridge. Like, we we marched across Sao Paulo for hours. And like, the the movement, whatever it was, filled all of the main thoroughfares and indeed highways. And we're just marching and marching and marching. But what you start to see on the streets, and I this happens, this explodes in front of me is that the new people that come, the people that hear about the protest over in these days, the people that were not there, certainly were not there at the beginning, probably have never been to a protest of this kind in their lives, have a very different set of ideas about what's going on. And I recount one scene in which some of the the original punks and anarchists that seem to me the kind of people that definitely were there before have encounters with people that show up, more middle class, more white, Big bulky guys, uh, and they're wearing they're wearing Brazilian soccer jersey, which ends up becoming the uniform of the bolsonarista, right? Absolutely. So right n- now in 2023, you would identify this these people as proto like proto bolsonaristas. These are the people that like this is the uniform that becomes a very obvious marker of someone that is the supporter of the extreme right president. But in this first moment, the punks are like trying to call in rather than call out this strange nationalist turn in the movement. And the punks are saying, (laughs) oh, hey, guys, like that's kind of dangerous because a protest that is in a support of vague nationalism can easily like transform into fascism. They're like trying to give like a lesson to these no, new protesters like, no, no, guys, don't like wave the Brazilian flag, wave, a, you know, uh, hold up something, a sign in, in, in support of the original demands, because if this becomes about everything, that's very dangerous. And these new guys, the guy that, you know, the new bulky guys are like, fuck you. I'm not like I'm not here to take a lesson from some fucking left wing punks. Get the fuck out of here. And like, ultimately, what you see 
by the end of that week, by June 20th and 21st, is the actual violent expulsion of some of the many left-wing parties that formed the core of the first few protests by this new sort of proto bolsonarista right. And the MPL, they don't know what to do. As I said, they always thought that a huge popular explosion would go their way. But, you know, there's this great, you know, the Turkish sociologist, Zeynep Tufekci, I hope I pronounced that right, has a great line where she looks back on what happens across the mass protest decade. And she's riffing on this, this, this slogan from the 60s, you know, what if they had a war and nobody showed up? Well, she asks, you know, what if you had a protest and everybody showed up? What if literally everybody in the country was invited to come out for their own reasons and bring their own um, sets of grievances and bring their own interpretation as to what it is? And at that point, you end up just sort of reproducing the existing society, which is something that Lenin warned would happen if there was uh, a fully, quote unquote, spontaneous protest. And so because this is central Sao Paulo, because this is a, a, a part of the country, which is not like the working class base of a militant left wing movement. The, the natural working class base of a militant left-wing movement in Brazil, you just start to get petty bourgeois reactionary understandings of what this protest is all about. And as I said, the MPL not only did not see this coming, their particular organizational form made them very made it very difficult for them to deal with this because um, they never believed in leading something. So they did not want to impose sort of their vision on what on the the explosion. So, so they'd even refused to negotiate with the PT mayor of Sao Paulo, Fernando Haddad. And you write that basically these forms of mass protests are fundamentally illegible. Dilma found herself watching TV news. You write with with the volume off, studying images of protesters and the and the signs they were carrying to try to figure out what it was that the people wanted. Exactly. So, and again, this is this very strange situation because. The MPL and Dilma and Haddad don't know how to respond to what's happening to this to this strange explosion. And at the very beginning, the 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 MPL had decided in advance, they decided far, far in advance, and they planned for months and months and months in sort of an ironically like Leninist fashion. They were very, very disciplined as a, as, a, as a group, although they were committed to horizontalism amongst their group. They had planned that, oh, they okay, the, the PT is going to come to us and they're going to try to negotiate. They're going to try to bring us to the table and they're going to try to sit us down. And, and, and that's not what we're going to bet on. We're going to bet on uh, a mass revolt. Now, the mass revolt comes and you get Dilma Rousseff, who is somebody that came out of resistance to the dictatorship, someone that spent her life in like struggling against repressive states, somebody that was tortured by the US-backed military regime, somebody who... Uh, just about as much as anybody else in all of South America, including the MPL themselves, would like to expand the welfare state and would like to expand uh, cheap public transportation for the masses. And so it's like in a deep personal sense, like her instinct is to give the people what they want. She's trying to figure out how I can find out what these people are asking for and give it to them because I'm, I'm, I'm a pro-protest president. I'm not going to be somebody that's against popular uprisings. So as you say... She sits in the presidential palace watching TV and she turns off the volume because she doesn't want to be influenced by what Globo News is, how Globo News is interpreting what's happening on the streets. But yet she's still limited to what they choose to record and and, and retransmit, right? Like she can't go out and wander in the streets like I did. And even if she could, protests are happening in hundreds of cities at the same time. So she's sitting there being like, what can I do? to give the people what they want. And so, as you say, I mean, the uh, Brazilian philosopher Rodrigo Nunes 
whose um, ultimate conclusions are quite influential upon the conclusion of my book. He says, you know, anybody that talks, that starts a sentence about June 2013 in Brazil and says June 2013 was, is already wrong. Like there is a contradictory set of narratives that come out of what happens in June 2013. And they're all kind of right. Like if you, I spent the summer interviewing the most uh, prominent representatives of the Bolsonarista movement in Brasilia, and they will tell you that their movement was born in the streets in June 2013, that that's when they realized that they could get out and protest and take their country back. Members of MPO, or the anti, other members of the anti-authoritarian or sort of the, the, the left opposition of the PT, will say, no, June 2013 was really about um, in, in, increased welfare state, about improving public services for regular people. It was about showing that the people wanted more. Uh, the PT will say, not all of the PT, but some people in the PT will say, June 2013 was the beginning of a moment that ultimately resulted in a coup. Now, these three interpretations, I think, are all right. They're all equally sustainable with facts. Like, you can equally claim that it really was the beginning of the Bolsonarista movement, just as you can, you can claim that it was about better public services. And um, this is a conclusion that many of the interviewees come to at the end of what I call the mass protest decade, that this type of explosion, this particular type of response to injustice, the apparently spontaneous, leaderless horizontally organized, digitally coordinated mass protest is so fundamentally illegible that it relies upon some outside force to impose meaning upon it. It can never fully speak for itself. So someone else ends up speaking for it. You paraphrase Marx's 18th Brumaire, Brumaire like so, quote, those who cannot represent themselves will be represented. You can choose to oppose representation, but that doesn't, but nonetheless, ultimately, a movement will be represented. And if you give up the power to represent yourselves, it's quite likely it will be your enemies. It will be Globo doing the representation. Right. Or ultimately, the as you say, so MPL is does not know what to do. Um, be, and because of their deep commitment to horizontalism, as they are swarmed with loads of Brazilians as they are swarmed with scores of Brazilian citizens that want to join the MPL. And this happened, by the way, to STS after some media, quote unquote, success that they had in the 60s. MPL doesn't know exactly how to integrate all these people because to create sort of a two-tier system with the original members really going to all the meetings, but then a sort of a, a different mass base that doesn't need to be there for all of the intense 14-hour meetings that go on every day, that would be, according to many people in, in the you know intense 14-hour meetings that uh, took place after their success, that would be like a Leninist de deviation. That would, be le that would be the reproduction of hierarchy, which would be the entire point, which was the, uh, avoiding which was the entire point of forming a horizontal movement in the first place. However, if you just let in thousands of people but everyone has an equal vote, well, then what is the MPL? I mean, how do you how do you maintain the original values if everyone that saw something cool on TV and wants to join the MPL now has equal say in what over, over what it is? Um, so they the MPL is neither ideologically disposed nor organizationally prepared to rise to the occasion and say, no, no, the what's happening now in the streets is really this, as you know, probably the Black Panther Party would have insisted on doing. They fight amongst themselves for a while and they, and they come up with the conclusion that they're not going to do any more protests for a while. So yeah, now this is a huge debate in Brazilian society uh, from June 2013 until now, sort of everyone has their own interpretation as to 
what should have been done with this huge mass of energy that had been unleashed and the, their endless fights over who could have taken advantage of it. But ultimately what happens, as you mentioned, is that there is a group which is funded by the Atlas Network, a what is called in the book uh, by other scholars, the neoliberal common term based in Washington, D.C., this sort of huge network of right-leaning, free-market, libertarian think tanks. One member uh, of this group had been trained by the Koch brothers in the United States. And in the sort of heat of June 2013, these kids formed something called the MBL. And the MBL is chosen intentionally to appear so similar to MPL that it can sort of contest the meaning of what's happening in the streets. The Movimento Brasil Livre is formed in this movement. And a year later, as uh, as the Jimmo government falters in its in her second term, they return to the streets insisting that they are the kind of thing that MPL really was, a grassroots, spontaneous, youth-led, digitally coordinated protest movement. But they have a very different set of goals and they have no they make they have no reservations about doing the things that re- that are required to win. And they ultimately become very close to the forces in Congress that impeach Dilma Rousseff and what a lot of the left would now consider a parliamentary coup. You write, quote, It appeared to Luis Inacio Lula da Silva and his successor, Dilma Rousseff, that the people on the streets in, in June 2013 were simply asking for more. But just a few years later, the country would be ruled by the most radically right-wing leader in the world, a man who openly called for a return to dictatorship and mass violence. Does the fact that the right-wing ultimately seized control over the protest meaning, does it necessarily mean that Lula and Dilma were wrong in this assessment? Or is it possible that raised expectations was, quote-unquote, objectively why people were in the streets, but those objective conditions are one thing, while how people subjectively understood their experience, why people understood themselves and others to be in the streets, turned out to be another thing entirely, is a is a key thing that you're navigating in Brazil and in terms of the whole book, all the cases you're looking at. Is it about the distinction between the objective conditions that bring people into the streets and then how those movements are ultimately subjectively articulated and understood? I think that's an important distinction, I th- and I think that the answer to your first question is no. There's no reason to believe that Lula and Dilma were wrong. Uh, that interpretation was entirely reasonable. It can be um, sustained with any type of analysis that is possible. The idea that okay, because to you know just to to explain the background, Lula ends his second term with incredibly high approval ratings. And Dilma has very high approval ratings at the beginning of 2013. By any accounts, this is an incredibly successful left-of-center government. The, the, the PT itself comes from more left-wing, more left-wing history, but as a, a center-left government, you can't really do better than what they're doing. But if you look very carefully at the type of success that they have achieved, the inclusion of the previously excluded masses of, uh, of Brazilian citizens happened often through increased consumption power rather than increased public services. So if you look at like Bolsa Familia. Yes. Or even indeed just the expansion of income. The, so the rise of incomes, the expansion of credit, you know, the classic sort of 
Lula success story is a family that can sort of either buy their first nice refrigerator and washing machine, or they can take their first plane rather than uh, a bus across the country to, to, to visit their family. And so this is the way that, that uh, many people on the left, including the PTC, it. Okay, uh, we have improved things inside the home. Now it's time to improve them outside the home. This is the logical next step. And indeed, if you look at the history of revolutionary uprisings, it does not tend to be in the moments of most of like intense immiseration that you see people rushing onto the streets. Often in moments of intense immiseration, people have other other concerns. People are trying to survive rather than coming to the streets and asking for more. So you can claim, yes, objectively, what the people are doing is asking for more. And then you can sort of do a scientific analysis. You can do a, a very careful study of what types of governments actually provide more of this type of thing to citizens and, and come to the conclusion, that, okay, this means a, a deepening of the social democratic project. This would absolutely be the left reading. But again, the MBL, they're reading and they're not, you know, they believe it. You know, they're acting very cynically in many ways. They're trying to trick people. But they also believe that the best way to, to help to lower the cost of transportation is free markets and more competition. They also believe that really the best way to respond to a desire for more is by a destro- is by destroying the Brazilian state. So the objective interpretation against once more is imposed upon the explosion by people like you and me or the people in, in, in you know political elites or you know social scientists whereas what people are in the streets what people believe themselves to be in the streets for is the thing that is going to lead to the outcome of the next election or lead to uh, support or opposition to the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff that happens in 2016 or the imprisonment of Lula in 2018. And again, this this is a this is something that goes all the way back indeed to Lennon. The Black Panther Party had this particular reading of of, of riots, you know, the, calling them the 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 Watts riot in 1965. I think proto political was 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 the root was the word that Huey Newton used, saying that oh, absolutely, they're doing this for the right reasons, but we need to develop more a better a better strategy for caring for achieving what we want to achieve, what we all believe that we want to achieve. And in the case of this, you know, this Brazilian explosion, the bid to define the best way to get what the people clearly are the the desire that it clearly exists for something is lost by the left and won by the right. It is often the it is it is ultimately supporters of the Lava Jato uh, corrupt, anti-corrupt, anti-corruption crusade and supporters of an insurgent right, which becomes far more right wing than is initially expected, that win this battle for uh, uh, the imposition of meaning. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by The New Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Toll of Its Military Machine by Norman Solomon. From Iraq through Afghanistan and Syria and on to little-known deployments in a range of countries around the globe, the United States has been at perpetual war for at least the past two decades. 9-11 and the war in Afghanistan set into motion a hugely consequential shift in America's foreign policy, a constant state of war that is almost entirely invisible to the American public. War Made Invisible by the journalist and political analyst Norman Solomon exposes how this happened and what its consequences are 
from military and civilian casualties to drained resources at home. Necessary, timely, and unflinching, War Made Invisible by Norman Solomon is available now from the New Press. Order your copy wherever books are sold. You write about the so-called Arab Spring, quote, There was an elective affinity between media coverage and revolutionary elements with a liberal, pro-Western orientation. And, and indeed, and I had forgotten this, the very term Arab Spring was coined by an American political scientist writing in foreign policy. The storyline ended up being, quote, the contradictions of the Arab exception were finally working themselves out, and history was finally pushing these countries into the liberal democratic order. This is the sort of investment in liberal teleological inevitableism that we were talking about at, at the top of the interview. And so you wouldn't know from watching the news, I don't think, that that economic concerns were a primary motive bringing people into the streets. How did these protests in Tunisia, Egypt, Bahrain, Syria, Libya, Algeria, elsewhere, how did they come to have this liberal and Western-oriented meaning that they did? And what role in particular did media play in making these movements such such liberal ones? Right. So this is a fundamental, this is a fundamental disconnect that you see reproduced over and over. Because a lot of the, as you say, I look at 12 countries in this book, and then I ultimately decide that 10 really fulfill the conditions for inclusion. Uh, and they're all outside of the traditional first world. So often, actually doing careful empirical work afterwards of what brings people to the, to the streets in Tunisia and Egypt, you find that concerns were economic. Uh, you find that this is indeed a, can be read, quote unquote, objectively, as you say, as a re reaction to the neoliberal uh, policy uh, package imposed upon the countries since the 1990s, uh, you find that people want better material conditions. So in a way, when global media arrive, what these really are is protesters saying, we want to live like you. Uh, we want to have the wealth and comfort that the people in the global north have. So, and But there's a strange confusion because a lot of times, uh, almost all the time, uh, people... <laughs> Some of the, the top commentators in the major English-speaking media in the traditional first world don't really understand how different material conditions are and the very difficult road that uh, that exists to get from global south to global north conditions. And so they, they read this rather than, we want as much money as you. Instead, they read it as, we want a system like yours, because they deep down actually believe that if they just adopt a system like ours, then that just automatically happens. And this is a deed... Uh, what was believed to be the case when you, when uh, neoliberalism was imposed upon North Africa, the idea, the thinking was, oh, well, that would just necessarily lead to democracy. Just like if you remember, uh, you know, we both came up in the 90s. This was the dominant thinking around China, too, in the 90s. Well, like, if they're doing capitalism, that means that they're going to end up with uh, liberal democracy, just like America. So often... Two countries with a McDonald's. If you if can, will never exactly if you have a you know <laughs> if you're doing if you're doing free market liberalism that means you're doing you know liberal democracy. This this slippage happens all the time, and so in the particular case of Tunisia, you do have in, I mean if you want to compare Tunisia and Egypt in Tunisia you have in Tunisia you have more groups that are able to act as organized forces and and, and claim uh, with a coherent voice what they want. But when you come to the explosion of Tahrir Square, again, sort of every type of Egyptian is invited into the center of the capital to push for 
the removal of this autocratic government. And this creates scenes of great beauty. I mean, this is the 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 degree to which this is inspiring and beautiful really has a lot to do with what happens in the rest of what I call the mass protest decade. This is undeniably a powerful and moving scene of every type of Egyptian working together for their own reasons to call for a better future. And, and, and the version of the future that they envision starts with the end of the Mubarak government. But th- yet, when you want to define what precisely this square wants, when you want to define exactly what it is that they're asking for, an outlet like CNN, for example, is not going to invite onto the air a representative from the Muslim Brotherhood, probably the most organized group in the square. They're not going to invite on young sort of uh, marginalized youth that are risking their lives, but are very important for fighting the police. They're going to, you know, and not, because for, for various reasons, both careerist and ideological, they want to create the, the media content, which is going to do well, but they also believe deep down in these sort of liberal teleological assumptions, I believe. They're going to invite people onto TV that share a the broad ideals of the CNN audience. And this is going to be the claim that is made, and I cite this, you know, that this is our version of the fall of the Berlin Wall. We are, this is a movement for democracy. And again, democracy is often, this is another slippage that happens. Democracy is often employed as synonymous for the desire to become like the first world materially, even though the way that you get there is not is less important for, for the people in the square than we want to live better. And so ultimately, this narrative takes off outside of of Egypt, you know, and this, many of the, I spent, you know, again, years interviewing people who were there at the very beginning, lived through this, this transformation. A lot of the people who had been fighting and struggling and risking their lives for years to try to put together the beginnings of the Egyptian revolutionary movement were like watched in horror as like certain leaders were elevated by like a particular tweet that went viral or being selected by some big U.S. outlet as the spokesperson for a movement which was supposed to be spokesperson-less, which was supposed to be leaderless. This is the inevitable outcome, I think, of, a, of this particular type of explosion. And, 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 I'm not, and it should be made clear, uh, because I'm not trying to cast aspersions on the people that put this movement together, they just didn't expect this to get this big. This was not something that had been planned for. This was not something that, you know, in, on January 15th, 2011, the people that were about to organize a protest on the 15th, did not expect the explosion that ultimately came. And so opportunities and challenges uh, appeared that had not been planned for. You cite Asif Bayat writing about the Arab Spring, quote, The Arab revolutions lacked the kind of radicalism in political and economic outlook that marked most other 20th century revolutions. Unlike the revolutions of the 1970s that espoused a powerful socialist, anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, and social justice impulse, Arab revolutionaries were preoccupied more with the broad issues of human rights, police accountability, and legal reform. The prevailing voices, secular and Islamist alike, took free market property relations and neoliberal rationality for granted. There's obviously here the, the imposition of a new ideological orientation, the establishment of a new hegemony that we've been discussing. But is the flip side of this, is it the systematic destruction of the organized left across the Arab world and across so much of the world, the destruction of the left by right-wing U.S.-backed dictatorships and also just authoritarian neoliberalism more generally? Is that important context here? Is a key factor that doomed so many of these revolutions, that they were not riding high on accumulated popular organization and confidence, but instead 
but instead emerged in a popular organizational vacuum, that they emerged from this context of historic mass and proletarian disorganization. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And this is, you know, in in the case of the uprisings in North Africa, this is especially true. So in Brazil, whereas the MEPLD was horizontalist, they believed uh, as a matter of sort of moral, they believed morally and philosophically in horizontality. A lot of the uprisings in North Africa were just more simply more concretely horizontal, not because they believed that this was the best way to be, but the but decades of the destruction of civil society, decades of the destruction of the possibility for organizational preparation meant that when the moment came, the organizations were too small and disconnected to uh, assert their will. So a lot, many, many of the organizers that put together what ultimately exploded into January 25th and January 28th believed deeply in organization. They were trying to build organizations. They were trying to build working class power. They were, they were relying upon labor action. They believed in the kind of things that a lot of the people on the old left believed in, but the uprising came too quickly and they found themselves concretely horizontal, even if they were not ideologically horizontalist. And I think that, of course, like in any moment in human history, there are, uh, there's again, elective affinity between certain ideological content and material reality. Um, this is the kind of thing that comes up, not only in the 1990s after the absolute decim- decimation of the left in the United States, that it makes sense that certain more anarcho-libertarian strains of thought will uh, rise to the top when, for whatever reason, for historical material reasons, Tahrir Square does not have a movement, a, a structured party at the center that can say, we are leading this revolutionary uprising in this direction. That horizontality is interpreted by global commentators and some people in the square as a virtue rather than a problem. And so even though many of the original organizers really really would have loved to have structured collective organizations acting uh, strategically, the fact that they didn't was celebrated by people that just assumed that that kind of thing would always work out well. Along these lines, as if we burn a sequel of sorts to the Jakarta method? In a, I think in an indirect way. I think uh, sort of, yeah, I think like the world, the G- the Jakarta method made is what made these protests the way the way they are. I think that's half half correct. I think that if you locate the or if you locate, as I do, a particular set of ideological and organizational assumptions as having their or- origin in a moment of peak anti-communism, McCarthyism in the world's most powerful country, the United States. And if you see the diffusion of this, these assumptions, as many people in the global south ultimately do as a result of U.S.-led globalization, then I think it's, it is a, a kind of an, uh, a, an indirect sequel, not only because it takes place temporarily just after the Jakarta Method ends, the Jakarta Method ends with the, the end of the Cold War, and this, this book begins with the post-Cold War global order, but because I mean, I mean, not because the not because I'm trying to link these things directly, but perhaps because in my conception of world history, violent anti-communism shaped so many things that it could not also shape organizational and philosophical approaches to revolution. Yeah. And like more concretely, just dismantling the organizations that were left, nationalist, communist, whatever sorts of organizations that were the dominant form, as Bayet points out, of the the Arab world throughout the 
50s, 60s, 70s, but also just the entire, the third world as a whole. Absolutely. And, and, and if you look at the places where there is more success, I don't want to jump to the end, but if you look at the places where there is, things work out a little better in the long term than they do in other places or, or indeed initially. Uh, in Tunisia, which is the initial success that inspires so many others, you do have still some remnants of civil society organizations. You do have a militant left-wing party that plays some role in the very beginning of the of the uprising. You do have a large, relatively autonomous and relatively radical union structure, which plays, plays a very large role in the initial success uh, of the movement. Now, 10 years later, things fall apart. And that's I think that's for different reasons. But then if you look at the few cases where there are indeed successes in this book, in South Korea, unions play a very important role. And in Brazil, when the the PT ultimately comes back and, and succeeds at wresting control of the country from this extreme right movement, it is an old organization which was born in pre-neoliberal Brazil that is held on just barely throughout the decades. The PT, the Workers' Party, which, you know, for decades was dedicated to creating a mass base and deep roots in society that ultimately is able to to vanquish the extreme right in Brazil. We touched on this earlier, but one one key thing, of course, that distinguished the 20 teens was the emergence of social media. So in addition to TV and newspapers, we suddenly had YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. You write that quote, for Western media, the U.S. government, and a wide range of civil society groups around the world, there was a near-universal agreement that technology in general, and social networks like Facebook and Twitter specifically, were going to make the world a better place, more free and democratic. It was a dominant ideology that seemed to be confirmed by events like the 2009 Green Revolution in Iran. It was propagated from and reflected in the very highest echelons of the U.S. national security state. The Bush administration, State Department, started training movements around the world in so-called digital tools. And Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's head of digital strategy once said, quote, the Che Guevara of the 21st century is the network. I mean, it's remarkable just because that optimism has since like really <laughs> curdled. But but it, We're in the, yeah, it's the exact opposite now. Uh, yeah, I don't want to get ahead of your question. But yeah, we things have flipped entirely since then. Yeah, I mean, it, it's for <laughs> for sure. I mean, there's Trump's election, Myanmar's genocide of the Rohingya that you write about the Islamist anti-communist attacks on the Jakarta mayor, Ahok. There's this long litany of horrific events that the very one time liberal social media techno optimists now attribute overwhelmingly and i i would say to a problematic extent to social media disinformation <laughs> it, it's sort of a mm -hmm. yeah it's yeah, there's an entire entirely it, it flips entirely i mean like uh, when i speak to young people and i hope like you know uh i think it's it's weird writing this because you have to write for people that remember this moment and i think for like a younger generation that would not only not remember this optimism but be entirely shocked to rem to hear that 10, 15 years ago, like the liberal establishment believed to a fault that social media would be good for their version of progress, for freedom, for democracy, for transparency, for, for American power on the world stage. They would, it would just make everything better necessarily because it would be an extension of voice to people around the world. Now, if you're speaking with a liberal, uh, a, a mainstream liberal commenta commentator, indeed, basically anyone uh, to the left of center in the United States, and you describe a movement 
of young men swarming the capital of a given country because of something they saw on the internet, the assumption is going to be immediately, oh, this could be a big problem. Like rather than thinking, oh, this is history with, with a capital H, this is Napoleon on the horse ushering in progress. The contemporary liberal is going to think, oh, this is a this is a big problem. Like this is a real red flag. Like what 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 viral post has like whether or not it was you know generated by Russia or deep conspiracy theories or whatever. What what has what viral post has made these men lose lose their minds in storm of capital? Whereas when we saw it, anything that was happening because of virality 10, 15 years ago was seen as necessarily good. And I think there's a convenient overlap with the fact that that the state that was most proclaiming and believing in this was also the country, the country whose GDP was about to be boosted to a huge extent by oligarchic control over the internet by a a few set of uh, social media firms uh, based in California. But this was absolutely, this was absolutely widespread. There was like almost nobody. Evgeny Morozov was one of the few people that pushed back and people screamed at him like, how dare you? You're just being, you know, you're just trying to shit on the arrival of, of global freedom and liberalism. Very concretely, I mean, the, the social media was deeply important for probably all of the cases that you look at. In Brazil, the protest movement's shift towards being a reactionary one against the PT was shaped in part by a new set of demands articulated by a guy claiming to represent the hacker collective Anonymous who just showed up on YouTube wearing a V for Vendetta mask. And then those five causes became uh, the the protest, the official demands or the or the in, implicitly the official demands became one of many things that you you would see on the streets absolutely and then in hong kong protester demands emerged in various ways from platforms like telegram should we analyze what was going on with social media at the time not just as this communications tool but also as as a tool for mystifying how decisions are made mystifying forms of highly undemocratic decision-making so that they appear in a legitimized form as the most the most democratic forms of decision-making known to man. Yes, absolutely. There is there is a false, there is an idea, there is an entirely false idea that the internet provides the type of horizontality which is necessarily democratic. One, it doesn't because algorithms created by for-profit advertising-driven firms actually are deciding what moves to the top of a given timeline or, th- or to the top of the internet based not on what people like the most or what people agree with, but based on what is most likely to pe- keep people engaged to their phones for the longest period of time so they can be sold products by other for-profit firms. So not only is the, the apparent horizontality entirely false, but this is the same problem of horizontalism when it comes into the real world. Like, who's getting to vote? Who is actually in these telegram groups that Hong Kong protesters were using to decide on tactics? How big can it get if you're letting everybody in and having an equal vote? Where you're drawing this line as to who's making a particular post go viral is something that nobody's paying attention to. No one really knows. Bots can uh, influence very easily. But it looks, at least initially, I think we've, again... Uh, moved past this sort of mystification a little bit. But initially it appears as, oh no, we've solved democracy because everybody can vote immediately on their computers. And then that will be, that outcome will be truly democratic. It's kind of like, you know, deciding deciding policy based on Twitter poll, right? It's like, uh, okay, yeah, you can have a poll on Twitter immediately, but you don't even know who's voted for it, which, which like, 
you're voting on the future of, let's say, Ukraine on Twitter, but how many of the people are Ukrainian? How many of the people are bots? How, you know, and so absolutely this mystification and, and this demystification happens in a very tragic way. Like people realize, oh, no, that wasn't right at all. We got carried away by a particular, a particularly affecting post. And again, the algorithms choose which posts are most affecting when the dust clears, that wasn't actually the most important thing. Or indeed, this was just one guy that made a really good viral video claiming to be from a group, which isn't a group. It was and you just tracked a guy. And you tracked him down, right? Yeah, I spoke to him later that year. <laughs> I, spoke to, I spoke to him later that year. Uh, so just a, a little bit of background. There was, again, in this moment of explosion where everyone is in the streets in June 2013, making their own bids to supply meaning as to what's happening. One of the more successful viral efforts is a guy in a V for Vendetta mask and he, he uploads a, a video to YouTube and it, it appears to be from Anonymous, this group, and he supplies cinco causas, five demands, five causes. And notably, you know, this, this as Asif Bayat's quote uh, indicates, none of this was about material conditions. It was all about sort of formal, strange, esoteric, legal, legal configurations of the Brazilian state. And it goes viral. Uh, people are standing in the streets with, with these signs that say cinco causas. And it's not the only bid for meaning. Some people are still in the streets saying, oh, it's always, it's still about public transportation. People are saying now it's about anti-corruption. People are saying it's about this, that, and the other thing. But this thing, as much as anything else, becomes one of the things that Dilma is seeing on her screen. And I talked to this guy five, six months later in 2013. And I'm like, oh, well, how did, you, how did Anonymous come up with these five demands. He's like, oh, well, what anonymous? It was just me. I just grabbed stuff from Facebook that I saw that looked good. This is sort of a tangent, but but one fascinating thing that I did not know that I learned from your book is that Twitter grew out of indie media in some sense. This anarchist-inflected, decentralized DIY internet news site that was the global communications hub for the entire anti-globalization movement lays the groundwork for Twitter. How did that happen? And does that story have some sort of causal importance in terms of how the horizontalist ethos of the anti-globalization protest era ultimately becomes embedded in dominant social media forms that then go on to shape this 20-teens wave of global protests that your book's about? Or or is it just a funny anecdote? I think that it does not. I mean, I, so there is a anarchist uh, named Evan Henshaw-Plath, who was one of the engineers who helped to create what we now consider sort of microblogging slash timeline uh, news feed configuration that is central to Twitter. Um, he had been a software developer for indie media. As I say, he's an anarchist. Some of the things that he innovated during the mass protests of the alter globalization era ultimately become the timeline. So initially the idea is to provide live feed of as to what cops are doing, uh, a lot, you know, constant updates to protesters as to you know where 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 what's happening on the streets. Now, I don't think that his sort of ideology, his roots in the in the anarchist alter globalization movement, like infect the structures of the machine in such a way that it's like deeply becomes an anarchist tool. But I think it is a way to demonstrate the degree to which these kinds of assumptions and this this strange overlap between anarchist and libertarian assumptions. And the incredibly powerful firms that are about to be born in California was so widespread at the time. The, the degree to which these assumptions were shared by the people that mattered most 
in the construction of what we now consider to be the internet. And a, a point that I very, very often try to make is this is not the only internet that was possible. It is, it does matter that it is for-profit California firms made by these particular guys. Indeed, you know, the California ideology does come out of, a, a, in a strange way, the remnants of the new left, uh, a strange, you know, much less leftist and much less uh, ideologically coherent version of the new left. Um, I think this does matter in a more atmospheric sense, that it matters that these firms were born in California. I don't think that Evan Henshaw Plath sort of like accidentally imparts his, uh, his, his ethos deep into the machines. But I think it matters that all these guys grew up in this, in this milieu. In seven of the 10 cases you analyze, you write, quote, the explosion was facilitated by viral images of state repression. In, in other words, social media intersected with images of police brutality. And, and you make an important observation here that, quote, it is far from clear that the most visible and affecting power dynamics are the most important ones in a complex society. They may be the tip of the iceberg or just the intermittent interventions needed to reproduce more generalized injustice. And and this is not to say, of course, that police brutality or police repression, repression more generally are not very valid things to protest against. But but I think you're getting at something important. What is it that you're arguing here about the relationship between the intermediation of reality through our phones and the way that police repression shapes these sorts of mass protests. Are you arguing that there's a trap where protesters can can fetishize the forces of repression and in doing so miss the system that those forces of repression are being deployed to protect and reproduce? I hope that it's not a trap. I hope it's the first step to understanding the true nature of a repressive system. And it's not just social media that make these images go viral. It's it's a combination of social media and traditional media that make people see the fundamental violence at the heart of so many systems around the world that they probably wouldn't have seen beforehand. So in, in conversations with uh, Lucas Legumi, Lucas Vegetable, one of the original organizers of the, the MPL, who spent like the rest of the decade, like the rest, like like all the rest of that movement, reflecting on their errors and what really happened. You know, in conver- you know, he said, "Well, the cops in June 2013, they did what they were supposed to do. Their job is the repression of a certain class, so that a certain capitalist system could be reproduced." Now, for most of human history, you weren't going to see that happen probably on your own. And indeed, a lot of the explosions that that cause the Black Panther Party to take shape in the in the in the 20th century in the United States have to do with the shocking reality of police brutality being revealed in a way that cannot be ignored. But also, uh, as Lucas and I discussed, if you want to, if you if you go around almost every state that exists on the planet at the moment, you can get a cop to beat you up. Right. Like at, the, at like almost every state that I can think of, perhaps you can think of an exception, but almost every state that I can think of in the final instance, the state is enforced through the violent repression of people that get out of line, like violent repression of some citizen will always be the ultimate means to which a state will have recourse if they believe that they are under under threat. So to a greater extent than any other in human history. It was very likely because of the existence of this particular configuration of social media firms and the particular media environment that we had, that everybody was going to see the most egregious cases of this type of repression, the kind of thing that had been at the center of our global system um, for, for a very long time. And seeing this, having 
the worst and most horrifying examples of this repression, having this become visible to everyone at the same time is incredibly powerful for, for getting people uh, engaged and motivated because this is a truly horrible thing that needs to be combated, but not necessarily true that every response will be equally efficient at creating a, a world in which there's less of this to happen. So hopefully, I, I hope that it's not a trap. I hope it's the first step. It is a revelation of the violence at the heart of the system, which can lead to, hopefully, a contemplation of what it is that that violence is reproducing, what it is, which system it is that that violence is required to maintain. And this is, you know, again, this is what uh, Lucas comes to, the conclusion that he comes to. And even though his, his movement is very much always about kind of the type of action that will come into inevitable conflict with the police, he also understands that the police are there to enforce deeper and much more permanent structural inequalities uh, than that than are apparent just at the moment of the repression itself. Yeah, I mean, I I, I hope it's the uh, first step and not a trap, too. And I think that's probably whether it's one or the other is probably a contingent question to be kind of politically struggled over. But sometimes I I do wish, for example, that the the very just attention played to police brutality on in these moments of, of of mass protest in the U.S. extended to the just enormous numbers of people locked up in American prisons. There's some way in which the police are like the front door to that system and that the focus can remain on the front door rather than the monstrosity of, you know, I don't know how many people it is now, 1.2 million people and under uh, some form of incarceration in the United States. Right. Because, yeah, as you say, there is there is spectacular repression. There is the type of repression that offers just a, sh a single shocking nine second scene. And then there is the repression day in, day out, you know, children without enough food to eat in the United States, the reproduction of deep, deep structural inequalities over centuries, incarceration levels, which rival at some points in recent U.S. history levels in the Soviet Union at their at, at, at the height of Stalinism. So the fact that one thing is most, most likely to be seen, that seems to be inevitability of our contemporary media and social media structure. Hopefully a different contemporary, hopefully a different media and social media structure is possible. Hopefully we can take back some power over the internet. But given that this is the thing that happens to be what we see, I, that I, I, I do hope that it is allows for a contemplation of the, the deeper inequalities that are everywhere. And as I say, that this spectacular and intermittent repression served to reproduce. The repertoires and philosophies that shaped these mass protest movements, you argued, moved from the global north to the south due to the fact that, quote, intellectual production happens in a way that reflects the hierarchical nature of the global economy. Where do you most see the signs of this? Was it in the very form of, of the mass protest? Or was it more in, as you put it, quote, ideological state mega apparatuses promoting the more mainstream ideas of democracy or liberalism? Or was it instead more concrete things like the fact that protesters in Thailand, Myanmar, and Hong Kong all picked up the three-fingered salute from the Hunger Games? Or, or was it all of the above and more? Is your argument in part that the protest repertoire of the mass protest decade was itself a symptom, an index of sorts, of Western cultural hegemony. I think it is a complex interaction of everything you just described. And when we're talking about the nature of the global system, the nature of you know, U.S.-led capitalist hegemony, uh, it is 
sort of everywhere, but in different ways and in uh, to, to greater or lesser extents, uh, depending on what we're talking about. So you you do see not only a louder megaphone given to the particular types of interpreters of events which have particular set of ideological assumptions. So as we discussed, like in, in Egypt and Brazil, indeed, the people that decide what is happening on the streets and then actually reshape concretely what is happening on the streets tend to share a set of uh, ideological assumptions shaped by deep U.S. liberalism. You also see more attention given to a greater reproduction of certain styles of political culture, certain certain political philosophies, if they tend to be from the legacy of Paris 1968 and punk rock and sort of U.S. political culture. Uh, I mean, it's quite, he's being funny, he's being quite cutting and self-deprecating, but uh, a friend of mine, Piero Locatelli, who's one of the journalists who did get attacked on June 13th and whose virality spurred the media to change their position, he looked back on sort of Brazilian political culture, especially in sort of musical subcultures, and he said, a lot of my generation was inspired by the Zapatistas in Mexico. But how do we find out about the Zapatistas in the first place? From Rage Against the Machine. So you have this strange situation where a country which is actually closer to Brazil than the United States gets to, you know, a movement in, in southern Mexico gets to another country in Latin America because it, because it is spoken about by a set of musicians from the United States. Again, like the issue of which things go viral, like the fact that spectacular violence gets shown to us more often than the day-to-day the realities of incarceration, this is something that is exists in our global system. There's something that is, is something you cannot change by just snapping your fingers. And so in the case of movements like the ones he described, hopefully that, start, that works as a bridge to a larger body of thought rather than a trap. But it just tends to be the case in globalization. And, you know, a historian at Harvard, uh, Adarn Vastad, has a, an interpretation of globalization, which I always like to reproduce, is he says that a better word for globalization is really Americanization. You really did see the the universalization of a particular U.S. approach to not only the, the, the economy, not only capitalism, but sort of deep ideological assumptions. And this was something that, indeed, many people told me that they wish they had been more attentive to as they came up with their repertoire of tactics. People from Egypt to Hong Kong told me, we wish that ideological assumptions born in the U.S. had not been so prevalent here. We wish, you know, in the case of Hong Kongers especially, we wish we had not turned to Hollywood for certain slogans and approaches to to conflict. We wish we had paid more attention to the history of revolutions in the global South. But growing up in, you know, I think I did, growing up in hyper-individualized, atomized suburban California, in my case, the stuff that gets to you first tends to be the stuff that is reflected through pop culture. And hopefully it's a bridge rather than uh, a bridge to a, a larger body of thought rather than a bridge off a cliff. But you cannot interpret, I think, anything without paying attention to the particular nature nature of US-led capitalist hegemony. And this is something that, as I say, my interviewees reflect upon wistfully. Things that work for you don't necessarily work here, or perhaps things that things that you, you can try in the US and fail. If you try them here and fail, you're in big trouble. In the US, you know, this is another quote which is quite, you know, 
cutting, but he's, he's trying to be critical uh, in a productive way. One Egyptian revolutionary said, in New York or Paris, if you do a horizontal leaderless and post-ideological uprising and it doesn't work out, you just get a media or academic career afterward. Out here in the real world, if a revolution fails, all your friends go to jail or end up dead. And this is a tragic, you know, a very tragic uh, reflection. But there's simply no way out of the fact that that the U.S. corporations have the largest megaphones for certain ideological projects and for reproducing certain elements in mass protest explosions. And again, it is this particular type of mass protest explosion which lends itself most often to in the imposition of meaning from outside. And so this is another reflection that 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 there must be measures taken to to make sure that a, a movement can speak for itself uh, in, in as coherent a voice as possible, or a movement must be aware in advance that the, the existing media apparatuses will play a role. So you must do as much as you can as have your own media, have your own way to get your message out. But there's simply, there's no way, way to think yourself outside of the particular global system we live in. And this is, this certainly um, had effects across the phenomena that you mentioned. There's this obvious cultural hegemony. I think you're, you're, you're right about, wasn't this also a moment of movements that had South to South and South to North features? That are that are interesting and maybe worth preserving. After all, Tunisia inspired Tahrir Square, which inspired Spain and Greece, all of which inspired Occupy Wall Street, which in turn, I think, inspired Occupy Central in Hong Kong. And you write about uh, your first viral tweet ever being about protesters in Sao Paulo and Istanbul drawing inspiration from one another during the simultaneous uprisings. In, in those two places. Is there a future you can imagine where better, more effective Leninist movements can take advantage of this heartwarming, <laughs> global, no, absolutely, yes. technologically enabled sense of cross-border solidarity? Absolutely. So this is one thing, and this is a distinction I think is very important. I'm glad you pointed to it. The, the possibility of the instant outpouring of solidarity of cross-borders, I think, is something that should be celebrated uh, entirely. Movements in one part of the world standing up and saying, we're with you to another part of the world. The explosion of inspiration. And yeah, as you say, this heartwarming cross-border solidarity is something that I think is overwhelmingly positive. Um, the slippage that often occurred was the copying and pasting of tactics from one country to another. Not only from one country to a country that had entirely different economic and political and social circumstances, but indeed the copying and pasting of tactics after the tactic was proven not to work in the first case. So absolutely, you want to sustain the possibility of north-south, south-south, south-north solidarity, because I, I, I think as this book hopefully demonstrates, and, and these hundreds of people would never have sat down with me uh, if, this, if they did not believe that this was the case, that there is a real demonstrable desire for change to the global system. And, and you can find this almost everywhere. People around the world want to create a better world. People around the world are willing to take risks to do so. And they should work across borders. They should inspire each other. They should uh, show solidarity for, for each other. And this is one great thing, I think, about our, cont our contemporary digital environment. But as, at the same time, people should think very carefully and look at their material conditions in whatever uh, national or indeed regional circumstances that they're trying to improve things and act based on that 
while maintaining the energy and inspiration that might flow in from abroad. Vincent Bevins is a journalist and longtime foreign correspondent. He's the author of The Jakarta Method and his book that we discussed today, If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that they cannot represent themselves, they must be represented. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And find us wherever you get podcasts. And subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes or another such site, please also rate and review us positively. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling people you know about the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. <laughs>